You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Okay, everyone, we're going to kick off on time and hopefully we will conclude on time. Um, but a really well, warm welcome to all of you to this launch of the State of the World's Cash Report. It's fantastic to have a packed room. I think we've got almost 500 people, over 500 people registered, including those online. So we've got a lot of people who are part of this event online, which is fantastic. I understand from ODI, one of the best attended lunchtime launches, um, certainly in, in recent times. So it's great to see the high level of interest in being part of this discussion today on cash. Um, my name is David Pepiot. Uh, I'm from the Red Cross, but I'm also uh, on the board of CALP, so I have a particular interest in this uh, piece of work and the, the role that CALP is playing in leading the agenda on, um, on cash. I'd like to just introduce the panel. Maybe I'm going to start with Danielle Mouton-Smith, who's joining us from Washington, D.C., over the pond, and it's early in the morning there. So, morning, Danielle, and welcome to you. To my left, I've got Matthew Wyatt, who is the head of Chase at DFID. Um, Fiona, who is fresh off a plane from Nepal um, and a senior research fellow here at, at ODI. So great to have you here, Fiona. And of course, Alex Jacobs, who uh, leads CALP and will be commenting in a moment to, to give a summary of the report. Just some practicalities. Um, in terms of the, the structure of the session, um, I'm going to invite each of our panelists to make a, a contribution on some of their key reflections on reading the report. Um, and then we might have a brief panel discussion after that before I open the floor to Q&A here, but also to those online. And when it comes to that, please keep any questions as brief and tight as possible um, and just identify your affiliation or what organization you're associated with. Um, and we'll be have a roaming mic so that everyone can follow your questions who are online. Um, a practicality, please can you turn your phones on silent, but you're very much free to tweet on hashtag SOWC2018 um, or continue to transfer cash on your phones during, during the meeting. Um, the, ca the case for cash is one. Uh, the debate now is really how cash and vouchers should best be used, and that's a driving theme throughout the report. So I'm going to invite Alex Jacobs to start to give us a, an overview of the report we're launching today. Alex, over to you. Great. Thank you very much, David. So I'm absolutely delighted to be a part of this launch of the report. Uh, it's been a long time working on uh, in the making, um, about eight months since we started the process. What I'd like to do is just very briefly uh, talk a bit about the process of developing the, uh, the report, uh, touch on some key findings, and then touch on the next steps. So I was just thinking just now, what I'm going to try to do now is give a summary of a summary of a summary of the report. Here's, here's the full thing. We set out to prepare a report that was 30 pages long. So uh, on that basis, we, we overran a bit, which is why we've now got this, uh, this summary, which is 15 pages long. Um, we've, the report was commissioned by, the, by CALP, the Cash Learning Partnership, with the global partnership of actors working on cash transfer programming in humanitarian aid. And as you see, it's delivered by a team of CALP staff, experts, and Accenture Development Partnerships. What we set out to do was to develop uh, an objective review 
of the state of cash transfer programming in aid today with two purposes. Uh, one was to assess progress compared to the commitments that have been made, so that would include the grand bargain and others. Uh, and the second was to provide shared insights to accelerate progress. So our ambition for this report is that it provides a common analysis that can be the basis for common action, for shared action, to keep going further down the path of using cash and vouchers in humanitarian aid. The report um, is drawn from uh, a wide range of both primary and secondary research, and we could talk a bit more about the methods uh, as useful. It's informed by expert opinion from across the sector, um, from different actors and from different uh, countries around the world. It was guided by uh, a high-level steering committee with representatives from donors and UN agencies and NGOs and national governments. The report you'll see is structured around the global framework for action, and a summary of that's included inside the back cover as Annex 1. Um, and this is a summary of, uh, this is a consolidation of all the major commitments made to cash programming over the last couple of years. So it includes the grand bargain as well as other major commitments um, and recommendations, for instance, made through the high-level panel uh, and ECHO's tense principles and others. The, the report, the full version of the report, is structured with one chapter for each of those six areas of the global framework. And then there are also eight case studies that go in depth towards the end of the report uh, in an annex, which I'd really recommend to you. We're unlikely to talk about those in detail today, but they, they really bring the issues to life in a variety of different operational contexts. So in terms of some of the key findings, if I could just ask you to turn to page five, you'll see... The infographic. So this is a summary of the executive summary that you're holding. Uh, so there's, this is a real high-level distillation of messages. There's vast amounts more analysis in the full report. So if we do have questions, I could refer you back, maybe some more of the analysis in there. But let me just pick out a few of the main points. So... The overall headline, in terms of volume, as you'll have seen, is that the global use of cash and vouchers is increasing, and it increased by 40% from 2015 to 2016. Now, we work quite closely with development initiatives uh, on preparing these figures to ensure that they're comparable, and we can talk more about that you know, as useful. Um, there's no question that over the last year and two years, cash transfer programming is being used to improve humanitarian aid around the world. So the major recent commitments that have been made are turning into action. Momentum for cash and vouchers is strong, and it has deep roots. It's widely shared across all the various actors in humanitarian aid. So you know, we can say the train has left the station and perhaps is picking up speed, getting up to $2.8 billion. It's striking that that growth has been uneven. And in 2016, over two-thirds of the cash and vouchers delivered worldwide was delivered by two organisations, by WFP and UNHCR. And then there's quite a, there's a set of NGOs which cover about the next sort of half-dozen uh, sort of places, as it were, in, in the league table of how much cash and vouchers they're, they're programming. 
we could do, it, it may be a case for debate whether moving um, up to 2.8 billion as 10.3% now, just over 10% of global humanitarian aid, whether that's a lot or a little. And I think there are different perspectives about the rate of change that's desirable and possible. Um, moving across to the third point on the infographic, which is I thought we have a whole chapter on this, the capacity for cash transfer programming is very clearly identified as a critical limiting factor. And that's capacity within governments, whether that's host governments, um, national organizations, international agencies, both UN agencies, and international NGOs. And the organizations that have made most progress in this area have invested consistently in building up their capacities over many years. And that's in a range of areas such as staff skills, uh, new steps in the program cycle like response analysis, as well as their organizational procedures uh, and systems. So one of the messages that emerges is the need to build up capacity over time, and that this isn't something that's happening overnight. There's also, not picked out on this particular page, there's also clearly scope for international actors to do more to support local actors to develop their capacities. The fourth area that the global framework picks out is around quality. Uh, and there's a perception that quality is, is getting better. Um, cash transfer programming is being integrated into humanitarian standards and mechanisms. So it's currently being integrated, for instance, into the revised version of Sphere. Uh, and clusters are engaging with cash. And I think that's happening at an accelerating rate. So more clusters are considering the use of cash more seriously, I think, and how they could achieve sector-specific outcomes uh, through this modality. As you'll see, when you can have a look in, in more depth, clearly some sectors have made more progress with cash than others, and there are still, I think, quite live debates about how cash and vouchers should best be used to deliver public goods, for instance, around health and protection. But we are seeing, I think, in general, a greater use of common tools based on best practices, which is helping strengthen uh, quality and ensure it's more consistent uh, across a range of different actors. Turning to point five on coordination, an area that's had a lot of interest uh, over the last few years, the findings, I think, may not be a surprise for many who've been involved in this area that the coordination of cash, it remains ad hoc and unreliable across responses. This is having a real effect in limiting the realization of the benefits that, the, that can be achieved through cash and voucher programming. It clearly reflects wider issues about coordination, uh, as well as limited resources and the variety of organizational interests. But on a more positive front, consensus seems to be emerging that cash should be co coordinated at the intersector level with the support of technical cash working groups. And the report describes some of the dynamics uh, and experiences around that. Turning to the sixth area around innovation and evidence, as we know, I'm, I'm sure many people are, are very familiar with, uh, many innovations have been undertaken associated with cash programming, ranging from the use of new technologies, whether that's delivering uh, humanitarian aid through mobile phones and so on, to now experimenting with blockchain and different use of biometric data 
and uses of digital identity. And there have also been uh, innovations around how agencies are organizing themselves and collaborating so as to um, deliver a more joined up and perhaps cheaper but equally effective uh, level of humanitarian response across a population. Evidence uh, is being strengthened, um, but gaps remain. And again, we pick out on this infographic just one or two of those gaps. As David said, the evidence about whether cash and vouchers are, are basically a good idea, a good modality, is pretty overwhelming. But how we do it and how it's used in different sectors and different ways, that evidence base is still being strengthened. And the report picks out some um, priorities for strengthening the evidence base further. That's a very high-level overview, as I mentioned, from this um, infographic. Just to wrap up, in terms of next steps, you can read in the executive summary a little bit more detail about each of those areas. And then if you turn to page 11, you'll see there's priority actions. That's pages 11, 12, and 13. Those priority actions are all based on existing recommendations. That we came to the same conclusion that the ODI did uh, recently, that it wouldn't be helpful to create a new set of recommendations when there already are significant commitments that are being worked through. So we've cross-referenced these recommendations to um, the Global Framework for Action and to the Action Plan for the Grand Bargain. Uh, there are a number of um, familiar themes there, which can really be summarized on page 14. So there were two overarching themes about, well, where are we, where are we going? with cash transfer programming. The two themes are that at the moment, the work is being done to integrate cash transfer programming into all existing mechanisms for humanitarian aid. So that means, as I've mentioned already, clusters. It means the coordination structures. It means agencies' own internal systems. It means funding decisions. Uh, and I think there's an increasing recognition that cash transfer programming has potential to um, accelerate certain reforms and to improve how humanitarian aid is provided, but is, uh, is one reform effort among many and is unlikely to drive all aspects of reform on its own. And the second key theme is around innovation and ongoing innovation. Uh, new ways are being trialed all the time. And as we speak around the world, uh, cash and voucher programs are being trialed uh, excuse me, new ways of delivering aid using cash and vouchers uh, are being trialled. That includes developing new partnerships uh, and also understanding, I think, better the strengths of cash and vouchers and some of the areas where they may not be the most appropriate modality. We've identified three enabling factors to keep supporting progress along those two themes, which let me close by summarizing. So the first <coughs> is that there's a clear need to continue to sustain the high-level policy commitments for cash and vouchers. We know that there's an awful lot of uh, agendas and reform activity in aid. Work will need to be uh, continued to make sure this stays uh, on the table and, and gets the attention it needs, even whilst the years, even whilst the capacity is built, which may take a number of years. The second enabling factor is around working collaboratively. Um, the more that agencies and donors and other humanitarian actors 
can expect to use common approaches and can expect to share evidence and to learn together, the more progress we'll make. Uh, and the better will be the use of funds for people in crisis. And then the final enabling factor is around supporting a limited amount of cash-specific infrastructure, whether that's at a, a national level or a regional level or at a, at a global level. But as much as possible, as I say, uh, the message comes through very strongly that the real um, future of cash is in integrating it into established mechanisms rather than creating parallel structures. Let me stop there. I mean, that's an absolute whistle-stop tour of vast amount of work, uh, but I look forward to discussing it further. Thanks very much, Alex. I'm going to go straight to Matthew. Could you share your reflections on the report, please? Well, yeah, thank you very much, David and, uh, and Alex. And I'm really delighted to participate in the launch of this really important report. I think it's an excellent, thoughtful and challenging, challenging to all of us, I hope. And I really warmly welcome it and look forward to this discussion. I mean, it's no secret that the UK and DFID, we see cash as having a critical role to play in humanitarian responses and beyond humanitarian responses. And in fact, it's a central plank of our... Uh, of DFID's humanitarian policy that I'm sure you've all read and committed to heart. Um, but I th do think that this report is a really key milestone in the agenda of humanitarian cash programming. And if anyone had any doubts, any remaining doubts, that cash can really significantly improve humanitarian aid, I hope that this report really quashes it. But it also shows us how far we've got to go if we're really to reap all the benefits that cash can offer. We live in a world where the gap between the humanitarian aid that's needed and the amount that's actually being funded continues to grow and in which the denial of access of people to humanitarian agencies and vice versa uh, makes it even more important that we use all the possible ways we can to help to get assistance to the people who really need it. And I think in a world like that, we just can't afford not to be bold and to maximise the impact that cash can offer. So for me, the most striking conclusion in the report is that there is huge, huge scope for us to do more cash and to do it better. So three points I just wanted to share that kind of stood out for me in the report. And first was just the crude numbers. We are using cash more, and there's terrific work being done, but the use of cash is still too little, and our progress, quite frankly, in increasing it is too slow. Cash and voucher programming, I think you mentioned in the introduction, only 10.3% of total international humanitarian assistance uh, in 2016, whereas there was a GPPI study that considered that it should account for about 40% of humanitarian spend. So in answer to your question, I think it was, is it a little, is it a lot? I think it's a lot compared to the past, but it's really little compared with, uh, with what we should be doing. And we've got to say, why can't we kind of close that gap a bit faster? Second thing for me was that the report flags that the fact that we're getting increasing consideration of cash as a modality doesn't always lead to actual more programming of cash. And consideration isn't really much good unless you have the action that follows it. Um, so and that's why, you know, the, we committed at the, at the World Humanitarian Summit to more than double the use of our cash in crises by 2025. That was a commitment made by, uh, by uh, the DFID Secretary of State. And thirdly, I just wanted, I was struck by two figures that both happened to be 28%. One of them is that only 20, and I think this is uh, quite an allegation really, only 28% of respondents think that agencies make the best use of common mechanisms for assessment and delivery, and one of the reasons given for that is that there's limited commitment from agencies to actually do so. So I think we've got to work harder to find the right incentives to shift that, because um, getting common mechanisms for assessment, delivery and monitoring is critical to working effectively at scale. 
And it links a bit with the other 28% figure, which was only 28% of respondents thought that national actors were sufficiently involved. And most thought there was insufficient support to build capacity of local organisations. And this is really, really important because humanitarian crises are increasingly long-term and protracted. We've got to get better at designing humanitarian interventions that can segue into development interventions and long-term approaches and attract development, private sector and government funding. And that means simple mechanisms that are designed and shared with those other actors. So our first thought when we're looking at how to, to respond to a new crisis should be to assume that it'll be prolonged and then to design our response accordingly. I just should add that I was encouraged to see 50% of respondents said that they did work with governments to use social protection systems for cash delivery. So there's a good platform there. And then just final few reflections in case you think I'm just getting too carried away for my enthusiasm for cash. Um, let me also say that we don't, in DFID in the UK, we don't believe that it is always and everywhere the best instrument. And I think one of the uh, members of the steering group for the report said to me this week, you know, we've got to start with the impact and the results that beneficiaries want, and then we've got to work back from that to design the right response and the appropriate instruments. I think we should always ask ourselves the question, why not cash, if we come up with another answer, but we've got to get the right instruments. And we've got to root our approaches in sound principles. So in DFID, we've been doing a bit of work to try and elucidate a few principles that we, uh, that we think sh should work for that. And it's a working document, but we'll be happy to uh, share that with people. We've got 12 principles, but three that I would pick out are, first of all, choosing the transfers and delivery model that's driven by needs and outcomes and appropriate to the context. Secondly, where appropriate, using a single transfer covering as many needs as possible and, and eliminating the inefficiency generated by multiple transfers for different purposes to the same beneficiary. And then thirdly, wherever possible, fund the delivery of cash separately from other functions. You know, there's some really important key functions in the delivery chain for cash, but they can be looked at separately, assessment, targeting, monitoring and evaluation and so on, and avoid kind of conflicts of interest and so on and increase transparency of where costs are and who does what. So anyway, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. I hope that we'll leave it with redoubled commitment to get on with scaling up the, well, A, the scaling up, but also the coordination, the innovation, and building the partnerships that we're gonna need to deliver support that meets the need for beneficiaries and allow them the kind of dignity of choice and agency that you and I would want were we in their place. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. We're gonna go straight over to you, Danielle, at USAID in Washington to give your perspectives and reflections uh, on reading the report. Great, thank you. Um, I'm very happy to join this discussion today and apologize for not being there in person, um, but do appreciate the, the opportunity to join virtually um, and, the, and the benefit that technology brings to be able to do that. Um, I just wanna start by saying, I think this report is, is very timely for several reasons. Um, some that my colleagues have already pointed out, but we are facing rising humanitarian need that's driven largely by conflict. And despite the generosity of many donors, those needs continue to outpace resources. And so it's perhaps more important now than ever that we're looking for ways to be more effective and innovative in delivering aid. And cash does offer us one of those great opportunities. Further, I think the emergency contexts that we're working in are becoming more and more complex. And often we're finding, you know, we can't get traditional in-kind aid into some areas, but we can get cash there. And so that provides us the opportunity to reach people who might otherwise be unreached by assistance. 
And so that's a really critical point um, in places we've seen that in like places like Nigeria um, or even par parts of Somalia where we can reach them with cash, but getting in kind might be really difficult. So it offers us an opportunity um, to kind of reach beyond what maybe traditional aid could have done a few years ago. Um, and I think also that we're, we should be looking for opportunities to connect more and more to local markets, which cash can really help with in recovery and resilience building. Uh, you know, this is important in these complex environments that we're working in, where we, we're seeing protracted emergencies that are driven by conflict. Traditional approaches to development might not always be um, uh, the way that we can go forward in helping those communities uh, build and strengthen themselves, but cash might provide that opportunity to support those local markets in a new and innovative way. And so looking for those opportunities to connect to local markets is, is incredibly important given where we are today. So that's why I think find, the findings that of this report are so timely. And you know, I was struck by kind of the, the pace at which cash has really grown over the past few years. Given where we were a few years ago in discussing the percentage that cash was, as a total of, of age where it is now, kind of the, the pace of, of growth is pretty remarkable. And I think really shows a, the engagement and commitment of the international community to responding to emergencies in the most effective way possible and always considering cash as an option from the start. So I think I appreciate, especially the, in the report, that it, it acknowledges a lot of the successes and wins around cash programming, but also does acknowledge the challenges and obstacles. Um, so it gives a really balanced approach, which I think is what those who are still have a lot of questions about cash programming can take away from it, that we are looking at this from a evidence-based approach, that we're looking at it from an unbiased way of trying to really put the results and the impacts forward first. Um, and, and that is what's kind of driving the, the agenda. Um, there are a couple of things that kind of jumped out at me, one being the perceived risk as being an obstacle. I know from USA's perspective, that is something that we struggle with, both internally within our agency, the administration, the public and Congress. You know, what is the risk for cash versus in-kind and how do we balance that? Um, and so it's, it's definitely a conversation that I think we need to continue to have and refine and look for ways that we can uh, find best practices and educate our partners and our staff on how to design programs that um, look at risk appropriately, uh, but factor that in and look at it from both kind of an in-kind and cash side. So we always we always tell everyone that, that risk and diversion is the same whether or not you're looking at cash or in-kind. We're gonna take the same safeguards, but really explaining that more and getting at the heart of it because it's, it's a perceived risk but it's also a real risk, and we do need to acknowledge that and find ways to address it. Um, and I just also wanted to uh, acknowledge the discussion on capacity building, which I think is really critical here, uh, both of our own staff, as well as local actors to implement cash transfer programming. Um, we are very interested in connecting cash transfers and voucher program to country level safety net programs and looking for opportunities to connect it to financial inclusion initiatives that are managed by host governments for longer term development gains. Um, but to do this, there really does need to be that local capacity in place um, or that it's being built so that there are strong partners on the ground to take these programs forward. Um, we've worked with CALP um, specifically to help train our staff and our partners and, and bring to them the best practices in cash programming to help educate um, and you know, capacitate um, our staff 
and our partners because that it we we did see as we were scaling up we wanted to make sure that we weren't scaling up too quickly that we were going to outpace kind of the expertise of of everyone and so i think bringing those skills making sure that people are sharp on them are really important and i think that the report does a good job of acknowledging that this is um, a gap and a weakness but something that is overcome uh, uh, that we can overcome with with the right steps so i just wanted to kind of close by saying that i think this report is an important milestone in measuring the successes to date which are significant and I do think should be celebrated, but also highlighting some of the obstacles and challenges which are real and do need to be addressed to continue onward progress. And I think it should serve as a good roadmap as we continue forward to refine and improve our efforts, not just for crash programming, but the humanitarian action more broadly. Thank you, Danielle. Fiona. Thank you. And uh, thanks very much for inviting me to speak on this panel. Um, as the other speakers have mentioned, I think this report is great. I, I think the infographic is, is really nice as well and very catchy and great to have a summary of a summary of, of a summary. I think it really picks it up very nicely. Um, so the, the few things that struck me, and I suppose I'm coming from a, a bit of a different perspective than the others, and more as a researcher on the ground and just having got off the plane from Nepal, where I was actually looking at the disability allowance, which is part of um, uh, the social security assistance program there. And I suppose I was just thinking about, you know, what are the, the sort of the six dimensions that you mentioned, you know, what stands out from this sort of very recent experience in fieldwork. And I suppose the one thing which sort of doesn't necessarily sort of connect with what I'm seeing in the field is, is and, and it's very impressive, is the fact that there's such an increase of funding going to, on, on the cash and vouchers. I think what we're, the, the actually the disability allowance is very very small in 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 Nepal, for instance. So that's one sort of disconnect that I'm seeing. But at the same time, this this increase is really really striking. I suppose the other thing that I'm that I'm seeing um, in this piece of work in Nepal recently, and also doing some work on the the cash assistance program that UNICEF and UNHCR are running in Jordan, is the sort of the issues of delivery modalities. <laughs> And how the sort of the complications and issues that arise out of that, and in a way, it's sort of cutting across the sort of the issue of coordination that you mentioned here, and also capacity. But it's also sort of looking at it from the demand side. You know, what difficulties do people have in actually reaching the, the, the services, reaching the cash, and um, accessing it? And I think it is coordination is a critical issue in that, as is as is capacity. So I think I think. You know, bringing out these two dimensions in a sort of more sort of high-level sort of approach is really interesting. You know, trying to also think about it, what it actually means in practice. And and the other thing which I would also um, really strongly um, mention, which is emerging from a lot of the field work that we have been doing, is cash alone doesn't work. You know, you need other things. You need vouchers, possibly. You need sort of referral to other services. You need to think about things like why are women not being, go, being able to go and access cash, you know, the sort of social norms which limit their mobility in many of these, these places. So I think it's a really strong message, which I think is also touched on here, is, you know, cash alone doesn't work. It's critical and it's very important. And I think a big finding on our Jordan study is that it has the cash assistance program does work and it does, you know, afford a sort of a certain level of security to households, but it's not enough much more is needed, more cash and more other things. But I, I commend the authors of this study, and I think it, it's a great, um, you know, great document and, and great sort of distilling of, you know, the key issues and bringing it up, and very timely, as the other speakers have mentioned. Thanks, Fiona. 
Um, in a moment, I'm going to ask some sort of follow-up specific questions to the panel, but I'm abusing my right as contributing chair to make a few brief comments myself from having read the report. The first is about a point that you touched on briefly, Matthew, around the tension between the scale-up of CTP, cash transfers, and localization. And that struck me uh, throughout the report. Um, the report mentions the key role of local humanitarian actors, recommends in Priority Action 3 to fund and support national organizations to build their capacity in CTP, uh, and recognizes that the grand bargain's commitments to making human humanitarian action as local as possible. But quote in the report that this sits in tension with operational models that increase the scale of CTP through more streamlined models that involve fewer organizations. And I would hope that's something that others, particularly there's a, a wealth of operational program ground ex level experience in, in the room and online, just that balance between the role of local humanitarian actors in cash and the tension with some of the models that are being rolled out. And I too would really uh, endorse this, the point the report makes around the key priority to invest more in local national institutions. Um, it was striking that the, protection, the practitioner survey said only 28% of those who uh, were interviewed in the survey felt that there is sufficient funding for local organizations. So that is something I would hope we might touch on. The second is around linking humanitarian cash transfer programming to national protection systems, which is something that I know you have uh, a lot of knowledge in your own research, Fiona. And it's clear that there's more evidence needed to understand how cash can be more efficient and effective if linked to national protection systems. While there are clear risks for humanitarian organizations, including the politicization of aid, potential mission creep or mission drift, um, the role that hidden bias in targeting beneficiaries, and the long-term nature of social protection, those are all challenges. But there are equally opportunities to bridge the humanitarian development divide in the area of social protection and use humanitarian cash interventions to strengthen social protection systems to be more shock responsive, although there is little evidence of that happening at the moment, certainly in the report. And finally, I was struck by the report's evidence of huge efforts underway in many of the organisations that we represent. And on one hand, that's extremely positive in terms of the integration, the development of systems, tools, training, evaluation, programme approach, cash rosters and so forth. But is there not a real risk that in this area of duplication, competition and fragmentation, and as we talk around cash being another area of reform in the humanitarian system, I hope it won't be one of the areas that contributes to competition and a lack of collaboration um, as we all get on board the train that's left the station. So I'm going to just turn to the panel with a few questions and then we're going to open up to, to the floor. Um, particularly to Matthew and Danielle as two influential donors in this area. Um, as I mentioned around some of the selection of operation models, uh, of which DFID is very strongly supporting um, your own experience in Lebanon, it would be interesting to hear your reflections on some of the learning from DFID, perhaps echo on the Lebanon experience in, in, in the operational models that you've been promoting. That's the first one to you. Okay. All right. Um, well, I suppose the first thing to say is it's still fairly early days. So uh, I think, you know, some of the lessons probably we still have yet to learn, but maybe some, some just re some reflections on the experience so far. Um, I mean, I guess one would be that um, donors working together, uh, donors working together is an awful lot better than donors not working together. 
I mean, donors working together can sometimes seem like maybe you're ganging up, but donors all saying different things, I think, is much worse. And I think one thing in Lebanon is, you know, there was a group of, of donors, ECHO was one, as you've already mentioned, Germany, Norway, the UK. We had very much a kind of similar vision, and I think we were willing to make the kind of compromises with each other and so on to come up with a coherent approach on the donor side. And I think that's important to moving. So I think, you know, and that's that when I first, my original remarks, I was talking about this is challenging for all of us. I think we're all having to find new, you, you know, we've all got to work in rather different ways than we're used to. And sometimes it bumps us up against our <laughs> systems. Uh, you know, if for donors, it might be constraints Parliament puts on or systems that, you know, Treasury is imposed. For some of the agencies, it might relate to mandates or whatever. But, you know, for all of us, we're bumping up against those things. So I think the fact that donors actually did have a coherent approach was good. Second thing, maybe, um, is... Uh, I think that there was a real attempt to draw on good evidence. I mean, there was evidence in Lebanon, you know, WFP generated great evidence on the kind of cash versus vouchers uh, debate and so on, and, and which is more effective in, in, in that situation um, and so on. So that was important, but obviously uh, it's going to be continually important to learn as we go. And I was very struck by Fiona's point that, uh, that she made about, you know, we've got to keep looking at it from the point of view of, is the beneficiary getting what they want? Are they able to access what we're... What we're saying is available. Is it actually happening? And triangulating with that, and continually coming back not to some kind of ideological approach to what we think works best, but what is actually working best for the beneficiary, and being humble enough to recognise when what we thought was going to work isn't working, and then change it. And then final point is, it is really tough to get a system to work in a really different way from the way it's worked in the past. You know, it's been, and I think it has been. You know, for some some of the partners it's been quite a bruising experience in trying to get the Lebanon thing working um, I hope that it's and I believe that it was really worthwhile that it was really worth holding to some of the key principles trying to keep a focus on the benefit you know on, on, on what is going to look best and what is going to feel best from the point of view of beneficiaries and work up from that and then if it doesn't kind of suit a donor or suit the agencies well the donors or the agencies that change it's not the beneficiary that should change mm. So, uh, but it is really, really tough, and that does mean that you've got to hold your nerve and be prepared for some pretty difficult conversations. So, there's three, three thoughts. Thank you. Can I turn to you, Danielle, to ask about the, the, the use of multi-purpose grants, unrestricted cash, which is identified as one of the crit critical debates in the report. USAID is not the biggest uh, donor, is the biggest donor on cash and, and vouchers, but is not the biggest supporter of multi-purpose grants. Can you give some reflection on that as that's identified as a critical debate in the report and where you see the future of unrestricted cash from your perspective as a donor? Sure. Yeah, so I think this is a, this is a very critical debate and I think it is one where we, we as USAID have had slightly different perspectives than some of our other um, donor colleagues around the, around the question of multi-purpose cash. And I, I wouldn't say that we're um, opposed to multi-purpose cash. I think that we have several internal challenges um, to programming that way that we are currently looking at and working through. Um, and then we have certain questions still about the system and how um, and how it's being measured and um, and how it's being uh, has been used and whether or not the system has the capacity to really take it on fully. So in terms of our internal um, our internal questions. The U.S. government humanitarian system is a bit complicated and wonky, 
Um, we actually have three offices that do humanitarian aid right now, um, two at USAID, uh, my office, Food for Peace, which focuses on um, emergency food assistance to all populations. And we do do complementary activities, you know, wash and so on, but we're really focused on that, that food security sector um, specifically. And the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, which is our sister office here, which kind of works on the non-food side. Um, and then at the State Department is the Population for Refugees um, Bureau, which focuses on refugee populations, everything but food. So it's very broken up and it can be very complicated, especially from an outside perspective of understanding those touch points and where things are coming from. But all that said, we have specific mandates and actually legislation and restrictions and our, on our funding on what we can and can't do with our resources. And that actually makes the multi-purpose part a bit tricky at times for us. Um, we can't just easily either one any of our one offices really do multi-purpose cash because we're limited by sector or population. So there's a very practical reason why, in a sense, we are limited on how much we can do with multi-purpose right now. And I say right now because we are um, looking at ways that we can um, be more innovative and creative and using our authorities and our funding. Um, we are doing some joint funding to partners, looking at ways that we can partner with, say, OFTA and, and come together to do a multi-purpose cash assistance grant. Um, but it takes a lot of work and, and, it's, and it's a lot of socialization with our partners on the outside, too, in terms of how they come to us as a donor. And so we have to kind of work on those, that area, talk about like new funding requirements and guidance and things like that to really get there. So I think we're heading in that direction, but it's going to take us some time to really get there. And I think our administrator, especially um, our new administrator that came in the end of 2017, is very focused on innovation. Um, and efficiency. And so I think this is up his alley in terms of things that he wants to focus on. But again, we are kind of constrained by some of those practical things that we need to overcome as well. But even as we overcome those, I think there are still some questions on with, from within the U.S. government about the system. And it, it does kind of tie, I think the, the report calls out some turf wars between different, different parts of the U.N. system. Um, there are those different questions around mandates and coordination that I think we need to get right. Um, and, and, and cash is kind of a forcing mechanism on some of that can be really difficult for those partners. And, you know, we've seen it hold up some programming in, in certain places. And so I think we really kind of need to buckle down as, as a community and say, okay, we're, we can't just say cash is going to kind of transform the system. We also have to look at how do we transform the system to make cash work better. And so I think that it is kind of incumbent on us all to have that part of the conversation to really think through what changes do we need to make to the system to make cash work better. And that is kind of, and that, that goes to the, the comments that have been made and the report points out around analysis, joint analysis, multi-sector approaches, measurements, outcomes. I think it's great and we all want to give the beneficiary choices and, and empower them that way. But I think it's also our responsibility as humanitarian actors to make sure that we're providing for their needs and that they have access to all that they, that they do need to have um, a good life. And so, is the system ready to do that? And if we fund one agency over another that has very clear mandates and functional expertise, are they able to measure and carry out the same way that another one would? So I think we just have to have some of those conversations to really push the agenda forward. And we are all for having those conversations um, and kind of and, and, and continuing down this path. Thank you. Um, I'm now going to open up the floor here for some comments or questions. Um, and while you're speaking, I will also just 
if I'm rudely not looking at you in the eye, it's because I'm reading the questions that are coming in from around the world um, and hope that we can feel some of those into the discussion. But first of all, just to those colleagues in the room, are, are there any specific questions you would like to ask the panel as a whole or even better, you might identify someone in the panel you'd like to direct a question to? So please identify who you are and your affiliation and welcome your question. I know who you are, Jackie. Hi, I'm, is this on? I'm, I'm Jacqueline Fries. I'm humanitarian, doing cash for almost 20 years now. Thank you to the panelists for a great overview of what's in this report, which I haven't read. Um, my question would be if this state of the world's cash um, is perhaps going to be a um, regular publication as some of the other state of the world's nutrition and all the other ones that we have. Um, have you got any ideas on how we can see more information on not just more cash, but better cash, um, especially with the, with the points that David raised about the local actors, the World Humanitarian Summit commitments, and the increasingly difficult um, access to the humanitarian populations that we're trying to serve? Thank you. Thank you. I might just take a couple of others to kick off. Any other questions? This side of the room. Gentlemen. Uh, hi, um, hi, I'm Tom Fisher from uh, Privacy International. And we're also doing some work with the ICRC at the moment on uh, humanitarian, uh, humanitarian programming and metadata in uh, messaging apps and uh, cash transfer programming. Um, because when you're involving um, any cash transfer program involving multiple actors, possibly banks, education companies, and then by extension, who else find access to the data about what transactions are going on. Um, the potential risks there for harms to beneficiaries, both um, you know, um, even financial harms and also risks to uh, populations by tracking their movements and things from these things is there. So I'm wondering what level of collection of data on those kind of risks and harms was going on and whether um, measures to mitigate those are being um, introduced. Thank you. Just one more from the front here. Hi, I'm Jake Zarens from Habitat for Humanity in the Shelter Cluster. Um, sort of very interested in, and we're talking about doing more and, and scaling up, which I think certainly the shelter sector is very keen to do, but we have lots of questions about how to do that. Lots of the tools uh, and approaches that have come from predominantly food security are very commodity focused and the markets in which we engage are quite complex, very different um, and I know that to be true for lots of other sectors. I'd be interested to know, particularly from the donors, how are you envisaging to support specific sectors to build our capacity to actually deliver um, on the objectives that have been sort of set to us around efficiencies, using single payment uh, modality, shared resource, et cetera, and we have very different needs and approaches um, to reach the sectoral outcomes that, that we need to. I'm just going to take those first ones and then we'll come back again for a second round of questions. On the question of more cash as opposed to better cash and greater impact on cash interventions, Alex, are you willing to...? Why not? Let me um, maybe answer Jackie and I touch on Tom's point. Uh, so, will this be regular? Well, let's see. <laughs> it's been a huge effort, and um, I should really pay tribute to all the people who've been involved. It's been a great team of people working, and also to the donors. We, we greatly appreciate the financial support that made this possible. 
Uh, I think it's unlikely we'd be able to do something of this breadth and depth every year, but we do want to do updates and we want to keep people's feet to the fire and understand what progress is being made across different areas, uh, particularly against the formal commitments that have been made. Um, in terms of deepening the analysis, as you say, I mean, we all know how difficult it is to measure the quality of humanitarian aid. And there's a lot of debate around at the moment about coming to uh, clearer common outcome indicators. If that's possible, if it's possible to do some of the things Matthew was saying about being a bit more transparent on costs and so on, the more that data you know, is available, the more the analysis is possible. I think you know, there's certainly a lot of discussion about it at the moment, and our, our opportunity is to turn that into real action. You know, let's see if we're able to take it. Are you willing to respond to the Habitat question? The Habitat, that was Jake's question, around uh, building capacity and so on in different markets. Um, well, I suppose maybe the first part of my answer would be to come back to the point, which I, I, is a bit of a mantra maybe, but I just think particularly people like me who sit behind a desk in London is to remind ourselves it's all about the beneficiary, really. So it's kind of, in a way, the question is less how do you help sectors than how do you help beneficiaries and how do you help beneficiaries meet all their needs and those needs, of course, are multi-sectoral and so on. So I suppose that's the first thing. And maybe the second thing is that when we're thinking about capacity, rather than thinking about building the capacity of... Uh, other donors or international NGOs, I think we need to also think, first of all, what about the local agencies and the local NGOs? We've heard that really there hasn't been enough, not local NGOs, just NGOs, but government and other types of institutions locally. So I think that needs to be really uh, at the centre of, of the things that we do. And we've seen from this report, we're not really doing that well enough at the moment, and we need to do more. Um, I think more broadly than that, that the kind of, you know, the learning uh, the learning projects that are happening around cash, I mean, this being one of them, I suppose, on the State of World Cash Report, that supporting those kind of things can help to indicate what works where. But then you're quite right that it does come down to that there are certain needs which, ha which can only be met by using different me method methods and mechanisms from others. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to work together to try and find out well, where what works, what doesn't work, to experiment together and to help each other to build our capacities. So I don't know if that quite gets to the answer, but you know, have another crack at me if you think <laughs> I've, uh, I've not quite got to the heart of it. I suppose, in a way, I might want to throw it back at you and say, well, what are you doing to build your own capacity if it's about you? Well, I think we're doing yeah. a lot. Yeah. And, um, as, as a sector, we're doing a lot, and we're working um, certainly with CALP and lots of other partners to try and get there. But the reality is that cash, as a, as a means of delivering assistance, has predominantly come from the food security sector. There's been a lot of experience, 10-plus years, in, in delivering assistance in this way. And within that assistance, we're looking predominantly at asset transfer. You know, how do we get something to people? Whereas a lot of the other technical sectors are not just about giving something. It's about changing behaviours, uh, improving ways have been done to um, reduce vulnerabilities, you know, whether it's earthquake resistance in construction, for instance. Yeah. These are quite complex things to do, and to deliver that using markets there are ways to do it, but we are in infancy in working out how to do that. And actually, when we're talking about scaling up cash, using lots uh, more multi-purpose grants, etc., it makes good sense for the transfer of assets. It makes less sense, or is harder, should I say, when we're trying to achieve some of these other objectives. And we're trying to get there, but we desperately need help. You know, the shelter sector is probably one of the more advanced, but we need a lot more help. 
And I would say that goes for a lot of the other sectors a long way behind that for them to deliver safely and you know following do no harm principles it's going to take a bit more work and we can't use cash as a catch-all for all that we do because we do more than give stuff and i think that's a, a worry that some of the sectors have and we need help and time actually to be able to do the learning you describe so that we can um, use these modalities most effectively without causing harm and use the word experiment it's not always the best word to use when trying to work out how to assist people um, because obviously outcomes are not always what we might want. So I think sort of the, the angle I'm saying is basically some of the technical sectors, we do need help, we do need time, and we need broader um, assistance from the expertise in this room and outside to advance that. Um, and when I talked about building capacity, it's so that we are comfortable within our areas of expertise to, to do what we're here to do. Completely take that point, and I think you know Fiona made the point that you know cash really really important, but it's not ever going to do everything, and you need other complementary initiatives as well. So, so that's that's part of the answer. Another round of questions from this side of the room. Maybe the person at the very back there, and then there's these two people here. Yes. Thank you. It's just an observation uh, linking to what Jake just said. In the reports, we read that WFP received 10 million uh, US dollars over a period of uh, three years to build capacity. So I think that investments do make a difference when it comes to getting better at delivering cash. Can you just remind us who you are? Francesca Battistin from Save the Children UK. Thank you. There was one other arm waving in the second row here. Hi, my name's Carmen. Um, I work at the British Red Cross. And um, I guess my question's directed um, at Danielle and perhaps Matthew as well. Um, it's about, you know, we've, we're very aware of the benefits that might, we might achieve through more integrated working, through linking to social protection mechanisms. But at the same time, have we thought enough about what the risks are in terms of blurring the lines between all of these different actors entering the space of cash and the perception of humanitarians, which in a lot of places we know is at risk. Um, so what is the cash revolution going to do in terms of our access to very fragile you know, populations? Thanks. Wendy, and the person behind you. Thanks, Wendy Fenton from ODI. Um, my question is really around the whole issue of capacity. I mean, we've talked a, li a lot about it, and in the report it's highlighted that uh, efforts need to be made to, to build capacity of local actors amongst others. But you also, in the report, note that you know, things are changing, and we may not all need to have the capacity to do everything, especially the delivery of cash. So I just wondered if any of the panelists had any thoughts about that, because building local capacity doesn't necessarily mean building the capacity to deliver cash, but to do other things, those other things Jake was talking about that need to be done in order to make sure that people get the, um, have the outcomes that uh, they're hoping for. Thanks. And can you pass the microphone behind you? Oh, sorry. 
Uh, thank you. I'm Anne-Marie from UN OCHA. Um, it's great to be here with all of you today. And I just wanted to say that it's really great to hear the emphasis placed on keeping beneficiary needs front and center. Um, and I guess this question is more for the donors on the panel um, in terms of, I'm curious how you see your roles um, or your role in helping organizations keep that priority in, uh, in an environment where realistically there's definitely an, an element of competition. Let's take that cluster of really good questions, and I'm going to ask um, Danielle, could you respond to that last question first around donor priorities and the commitment to, to be in there for the long haul? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, that, that it's, a, it's a very good question, and I think that there, it kind of also, I think, links a bit to the other question, too, about blurring lines of humanitarian aid. But... Um, you know, there's, there is kind of this, there is a, a competition, I think, in terms of um, accessing resources and such. But I think we're, we, we do see our humanitarian aid as separate from our development assistance. We have different criteria, we have different focus, um, and we look at it from a different lens. We're not looking at it from a, a lens to, um, to, have, to that where the governments need to be strongest, the strongest partner. We're looking at it from a needs-based perspective. And I think within the, within the United States, for example, our administrator has really kind of spoken out that whenever there's a crisis, we're gonna be there. And he is very, very keen to kind of elevate humanitarian assistance and make sure that our strengths and our, our capacities are strengthened um, over the next few years. And I think we've seen that from the public and from um, Congress as well, that there is a strong, this is, it's one of the most visible parts, I think, of what USAID or any government really does is humanitarian assistance. And it really is kind of that, that front line. Um, and in terms of cash, I mean, I think we, for example, in the US government, this administration has really prioritized asking for funding in those accounts that are most flexible. Um, and our budget request that comes from the president, for example, is administration policy. And last year, um, there was this very clear um, focus on putting resources where they can be most effectively used as cash or in kind or whatever it is, but to give us the full flexibility to determine what that is and to not tie our aid to any specific sector or in, uh, domestic in kind assistance. So I think there's really been kind of a movement and a focus on increasing that choice and that flexibility by us as kind of an implementing agency um, and then by our partners um, as well. So I, I see the commitment there um, and I, I don't really see it shrinking. I think as long as there are emergencies, um, there's going to be donor support and we're always going to be wanting to innovate and become more effective so that we can stretch our resources further and reach as many people as possible. Thank you. And this question that Wendy raised around investing in core skills and competencies mm. in a more collaborative way rather than every agency taking the role to deliver the A to Z of cash transfer. Yeah, programming. I suppose it, it links to Anne-Marie's question too, doesn't it, in terms of this competition. And, and I mean, I suppose when you get, so, I mean, in a sense, cash is a bit of a, as, as it's now being you know, scaled up and changed and so on. It's a disruptive technology, so it does mean that all of us have to think. I mean, all of us, as all of us, both donors and agencies, we're all supposed to be trying to doing do ourselves out of business. So our first thought shouldn't be, well, you know, what's my role as slice of the pie? 
I guess what the better question really in all that is, well, where can I really add value and where do I want to specialize? And maybe maybe it will mean that we will be kind of configured slightly differently. I was talking a bit earlier on about breaking down what the different functions will be, you know, from there's, you know, from the protection, from a beneficiary lists and actually the kind of targeting and understanding who needs help and how they should get it through to delivery, monitoring and assessment, evaluation. There are lots of different bits of the chain. Organizations will have to ask themselves some hard questions about where they want to specialize and which they, where they think they've got, you know, comparative advantage and and where maybe they haven't got a comparative advantage and we'll have to change so that I think that's an important bit of it I mean I think it is true when it comes to you know, how it looks on the ground we want to make sure that things are being that delivered and capacity is being built in a coherent kind of a way that is a challenge but I don't think it's any more of a challenge than we've traditionally had when it's come to trying to build capacity or when we focus more on sectoral approaches and so on so I think a lot of the problems, it probably goes to Carmen's point on risks as well, that, you know, there have always been really big risks. There've always been, there's always been competition. There's always been a challenge of coordination and so on. And where, where are these are real <coughs> challenges when it comes to cash, and they're extra challenges because we haven't been dealing with them for so long and haven't found our way. So they are new challenges, but they're not inherently, I would throw out anyway, I've, kind of posit that they're not inherently terribly different from some of the other challenges that we've faced in the past. Thank you. I'm just going to take a few questions from colleagues uh, who are online and then we'll come back to those in, in the room. Um, Nina asks, has gender been addressed in the full report? Cash can either empower women or potentially expose them to increased risk of gender-based violence. Please could the panel reference what modalities, approaches they have found through the development of this report to be most effective in reducing risk and empowering women? Shall I just answer that? Please. So the, the straight answer to the question is not enough. Has gender been uh, covered in the report? However, the, the good news is that we actually have uh, CalPERS running a gender symposium in Nairobi next month, which will bring together a great range of evidence on uh, the relationships between cash and gender. Uh, and we'll be, there'll be a lot of discussion there and there'll be publications coming from that. So watch this space. And join, please join. Um, you, know, you can still join that symposium if you'd like to. And another question from Zara asking, are there examples that the panelists have of where they see multi-purpose grants, perhaps taking lessons learned and being applied in recent disasters? I'm thinking of some of the recent big emergencies, like in the Caribbean or maybe in Bangladesh. And if the panel aren't able to offer any, I ask the, the floor equally if there are examples of multi-purpose grants and some of the learning uh, ar around that and evaluation. A quiet panel. So, are there any examples that anyone in the in your experience would like to just highlight, given this critical debate in the report around the use of unrestricted cash? Good afternoon. My name is Luisa from the Danish Refugee Council. Um, we have uh, a number of multipurpose cash grants. Uh, Matthew mentioned Lebanon is one of them, and that's where the term came from. But Somalia has been doing multipurpose cash for years, um, and Danielle also mentioned some of that. And so, uh, what's interesting about that is when we're looking at multipurpose cash going beyond sectors, it does free up agencies to think about what are the complementary initiatives, whether, you know, Fiona mentioning um, protection initiatives, counseling, Jake was talking about shelter. It allows people to identify their priorities 
um, and then for humanitarians to respond accordingly, whether local or international actors. Um, there's also currently a project funded by ECHO, the Enhanced Response Capacity Project, looking at the uptake of multipurpose cash. And it's a consortium led by Save the Children. Uh, and there was a pilot in Nigeria, and there was another one, uh, there's another one currently ongoing in Ethiopia looking at how multipurpose cash um, can, be, can be better utilized. But I think we're still kind of trying to learn from some of the responses in the Caribbean and, uh, and then the proposed responses now in Bangladesh and Cox's Bazaar. But uh, let's keep that space open. We know that Kelp is, uh, is following on that very closely. Thank you. Thank you. Matthew, you wanted to make a comment on that point? Yeah, yeah. well, I, I just thought it was, it was great that you mentioned Somalia, because I think that's been a really good example of where um, cash has been used to really good effect. But there's also some really exciting innovations going on there. So, for example, um, one of the questions about people, who, people who've been displaced is if they want to go back. First of all, of course, there is the whole question about it needs to be voluntary and, 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 and all that. That's, but take that as read. But if people do want to move, there is the disincentive to move home because they, they may lose their transfers, be they in kind or be they cash. So there's in, there are innovations in Somalia where um, people are able to take their card with them. If they decide that they want to go back, they're able to take their card with them and they're able to use their card back in their back at home rather than just in the area where they already are. So that's a kind of really good example, I think, of, a, of an innovation that could work well. There's also maybe we didn't really come back to the question of data protection and so on. I mean, there's also some really good innovations being used of using data in order to gather information about how they're used and what they're used for. But your point uh, you, you made earlier on about the question of how do you make that data safe and are we using the right technologies? Are we using blockchain effectively? Is the data being um, being kept safe is a really important one. So there are some amazing uses that we could be making of data and new technologies, but we also need to be very mindful that, they're, that that's done in a safe way and doesn't put people at risk. Just briefly, David, if I may, just on those examples, and including some of the ones that Louisa mentioned, uh, I did mention there are those eight case studies that go in depth uh, in the report, and there are some great examples there, including the Nigeria ERC, including Somalia and others. You can download just the case studies on their own from our website. Can I pick up on one point that's particularly asking, um, I guess, building on some of the comments and reflections you made, uh, Fiona, on the point that cash alone isn't enough and that associated services are key. Should we now start tracking and valuing cash-associated service delivery in these reports, as well as just the, the financial value? I mean, I don't want to burden these reports with a whole other layer, because so, there's obviously a huge amount of work done anyway on it. Um, I mean, a lot of the recommendations that we end up making is that, you know, you know, cash alone doesn't work, and we need to think about what else is needed. For instance, in, in the work that we, we just did in, um, in, on the Jordan, um, uh, on the Jordanian, on, on the UNHCR and UNICEF cash assistance for, for Syrian refugees in, in Jordan, I think some of the recommendations we made to, to deal with issues of social cohesion, which the, the cash transfer didn't seem to be having much effect on, was to think about, you know, you know, especially on women who remain particularly isolated, was things like, you know, setting up women's groups, sort of building on the Makani centres, which are these sort of integrated centres which UNICEF are running. So I think, I think a lot of the recommendations sort of, and in a sort of like a next step, you know, to just giving out cash assistance, you know, it would come afterwards probably. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to burden that on, on a report like this, but I think it is critical. It is critical to think about that. Okay. Um, last 
couple of questions because there's a cluster of them, not surprisingly, around coordination. Um, and I'll read one that I think covers uh, a range of coordination issues that a number of people have posed. Are there any current efforts and links being made between cash, in particular MPGs, and the UN reform, which is ongoing? It's been ongoing for a long time. In view of cash coordination and cash's place in the coordination structure, linked to this, has there been any progress in reforming at least the coordination structure, if not mandate, of UN comparative advantage revisions? There are probably others in the room and online who know more about this than I do. <laughs> I mean, certainly the wider issues of UN reform and so on. Uh, I think we are seeing this emerging consensus about where cash coordination fits, and so I think you know, that's a part of the puzzle, but it's one component of it. And the wider you know, issues around UN reform and coordination, they're not going to be solved by cash. And I, I think that relates to one of the themes that have come out in this conversation, actually, that cash shines a spotlight on some of the, um, you know, some of the great successes of, of current human humanitarian aid and some of the problems we have with the humanitarian system. And then I would always finish that sentence with, and can help solve some of them, um, which it clearly can. We're making progress on some of them, but it's not going to solve all of them, and clearly cash isn't going to solve the problem of, of overlapping mandates and so on and, and wider UN reform. But I'm going to ask Danielle um, whether you had a particular comment around cash coordination in the U as it's linked to UN humanitarian reform. Yeah, I think this has been one area that we've been um, very focused on, and we've been, been trying to support kind of different initiatives to really focus within OCHA or other parts to to get cash to get the cash coordination mechanisms more institutionalized. I think it's been it's been a challenge, and I think in some countries, been a real hiccup to um, to scaling up cash or really getting cash to work the best it can across the across the sector. So. We've been looking for trying to engage other donors around um, opportunities to to try to focus some of those groups um, on how do we how do we coordinate. We've supported in different countries where we've seen kind of a weakness in cash coordination, um, CALP or um, or FAO or others who are kind of trying to lead that cash coordination group. We've tried to invest in those groups to to try to pull those together and get those mechanisms working. Um, we saw this in Haiti after the last hurricane. There was a real lack of kind of coordination right away on the cash side. Um, and so we did kind of try to put funds behind it to try to get that to get that group going so that there could be better coordination. But this, I think from our perspective, it, you know, it needs to be coordinated from a central body like the rest of the cluster systems and kind of looked at um, a, across the different sectors and how it's working um, and implementation and delivery can be separate from that. The coordination does not need to be tied to, to those, just like all the other sectors. But I think we do need to kind of take positive steps and really move it forward. The conversation is happening. It's just maybe not keeping pace with the, the delivery right now of, of, of cash. And, and I do kind of see this as a stumbling block. Okay. An opportunity for others here to comment on that key coordination issue or indeed make another comment or pose a question that you would like to to the panel. Front row here and third row over the back there. Yes, my, my name is Marcus Geiser from the ICLC. Uh, thanks also for getting back to the question regarding data protection. I think it's an important issue. Uh, maybe a question for the authors of the report. Uh, we haven't really talked about state authorities. 
Can you shed any light on the context, whatever the context there may be that you have looked at? What is the opinion of state authorities, not only in capitals, but also local authorities? Again, cash injection can be uh, positive, seen positive, can also be seen negative by local, the local economy, for example, that would like to probably sell food. Uh, instead of just having people getting getting cash vouchers and actually buying it themselves. A little bit that aspect, that uh, kind of state authorities aspect. Thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you. Hello, I'm Daphne Jayasinghe from the International Rescue Committee. Um, I'm very grateful for the report. I think it's a, a great roadmap for progress and measuring progress. Um, and I was really pleased to see that the quality of cash transfer programming is, is one of the elements that are judged in the report. Um, I have a question for the panel on what they would like to see um, more than in terms of consistent standards, but rather consistent measures for monitoring the quality of cash programming. Um, I'd really like to hear from the panel what they'd like to see consistently measured in cash transfer programming. Alex, there was a Should particular question directed to you. We can take another one while we're at the back there on the right, and then you'll have to respond to that. Yeah. Um, hello, I'm Rachel Thompson at Chatham House, a researcher in global health, so I'm not in the cash world. But I just wanted to pose um, to get your views on the this issue of universal health coverage, which is obviously an SDG, and in the spirit of SDGs, as we know well at ODI, we're leaving no one behind. And UHC is universal health coverage about uh, for, well affordable access to healthcare. I wonder if there is any thinking or um, discussions in the cash world about is there a tension between see, promoting and uh, promoting cash and giving beneficiaries cash, but then also wanting to remove user fees and enable free and uh, accessible services. Just wondered if there's any thoughts on that. Thank you. Great. Well, let's respond to those first three questions. Great, uh, there was you. one directed to you, Alex. Yeah, sure. Let me just comment briefly on the role of state authorities. There is a case study in here in, um, on Turkey, which, of course, the biggest uh, humanitarian cash program around, um, where the host government is firmly in the driving seat, really. Um, we discuss state authorities in a number of different aspects in the report. Uh, I think there's... A growing sentiment, as discussed already, about the link with social protection systems, and we see that in a, in a variety of places. Um, I'm, there, there are you know, many different aspects of it. I'm not sure we go into great depth across all of them, but I'd encourage you, you know, have a look through. Thanks. Well, I'm looking at way. Fiona, would you like to comment as well? Uh um, on this last one, I was going to comment on the, some ideas for measures to which we could consistently, yes. consistently include. And I suppose I'm not going to go through everything, but one thing which I think is important to think about, and perhaps it's not so much covered in, in here, and it would be good, and in a way it li might link to the issue of sort of state, sort of, sort of more political economy type questions, is issues of sort of accountability and sort of transparency and sort of processes that are happening sort of, you know, from sort of complaints mechanisms to sort of community monitoring groups to these kinds of processes. And I think these are sort of critical processes, which in a way also responds to maybe the question that you were raising, Wendy, about, you know, building local capacity. So it's not just about doing m and &E, but it's also about sort of developing processes. And, and perhaps these are more important than actual delivery, but processes to ensure that, you know, accountability and transparency is, is happening. 
at sort of different levels. And I think it, that would be one of the key things to try and measure, you know, in, in all these processes going forward. So that's just w one piece of it. I would also like to respond to, to the comment that, you know, was made online about, you know, and, you know, you, you rightly, point, rightly pointed out the gender possibly wasn't included in, enough in here, and it's good to hear about your symposium. I think another dimension which possibly is not included so much are sort of looking at different kinds of vulnerabilities of, be of beneficiaries and what that meal means in terms of um, sort of delivering and accessing and also in terms of M&E, you know, what should we be including, you know, is it is it women, is it children, is it people with disabilities, is it older people, you know, wh what are these different vulnerabilities and what are their particular needs? And then I'm sort of linking it also to sort of M&E systems, I think we need to think about how we capture those in, in M&E systems. So I've answered quite a few questions here at right, the same time. <laughs> Matthew, did you want to comment on um, Rachel's question? On the health services, yeah, I mean, I suppose there is a general question, isn't there, that cash, it can be terrific in generating efficient demand and giving people agency and choice, um, but it will only work where markets work and where you can buy the goods or the services that you want. I mean, it comes back a bit to Tom's point, I think, a little bit earlier on the shelter question, that you don't solve all the problems in the sector with one, one instrument, cash. I think it can make a really big contribution on healthcare because, of course, a lot of people don't have access to free, high-quality health services, uh, certainly necessarily from the state, but sometimes they can access maybe private services or paid-for services, and where that is possible and where they want to use their resources to access those, then empowering them to do so can only be a good thing. But I completely agree with you, it doesn't solve the whole problem. And the fact that you may have a very effective cash transfer system uh, won't mean necessarily that all your services will be ideal and you've got to take other measures to do that, which comes right back to your point, Fiona, at the beginning, doesn't it? That cash is really important, cash is brilliant, but it's not everything and can't do everything. There's one comment, question that's just come in from the Yemen Cash and Market Working Group. Um, and I'd like Danielle to respond to this one if you if you agree. Does the panel have any thoughts on the topic of humanitarian plus programming, in brackets, development cash in humanitarian contexts, and how that could be integrated into existing humanitarian structures? So I think what they're asking is, is humanitarian development coming together? Is that kind of what the question is I think about? That, yes. Yeah, so I mean, I think that this is um, a real opportunity that, that that cash programming does provide, but it has to be, as as Fiona has kind of said, done in the context of other of other um, kind of complementary activities and, and programming. I mean, when we look at our emergency programming, we very much look at it from an eye of can we build in different pieces that help us connect to the broader development work that the rest of the agency is doing, or um, is there kind of opportunities to build in some type of livelihood recovery program or something so that we're attending to the urgent need that is kind of the life-saving activity of today, but also trying to build in those activities moving forward. Um, and we've used kind of different, different opportunities with cash for assets or cash for work programs to try to stimulate different types of um, on the ground um, recovery programs to help bridge that divide. Um, in Food for Peace, uh, we actually program with the only office, I think, in the U.S. government that does both humanitarian and development programming. And so we very much look at ways that we can um, focus our development programming in areas of chronic shock and vulnerability. So in those countries or those communities where year after year we are going back to provide humanitarian assistance or 
We're seeing lean season year after year kind of requiring emergency food assistance. Can we put our development program there to try to focus on um, building the food security of that community longer term? And our programs are always multi-sectoral, those development programs. Um, but then we also build in kind of a crisis or a surge response capacity to those as well. And so in many places um, we've seen where we have, this has happened in Haiti and South Sudan um, and other countries where we've had development programs on the ground focused on, uh, on food security, but then some kind of shock has happened, whether it's a hurricane, a drought or a conflict. And we've been able to kind of come in with a cash transfer or a voucher that helps those, um, those communities not go into negative coping practices that would require them to sell off assets or, or livestock or not plant for a season because they don't have funds for seeds. They can continue, build, continue down that development path, but we give them that emergency um, assistance on top of it, um, usually in the form of kind of a cash transfer or a voucher that allows them to uh, still make sure that they have food or other supplies that they need for their family. So it's kind of a, a, a crisis surge response that helps us kind of make, make sure that we're protecting those development gains in the face of emergencies. I think in a place like Yemen, it's, it's challenging, um, you know, especially because it's the conflict and it's such an unpredictable conflict in, in many ways to really kind of think about development at the same time of emergency. And the emergency is so large and taking up so many resources, it's hard to kind of to, to focus on the development aspects now. But I think in many of these protracted crises, whether it's Syria, or Yemen or, or South Sudan, we do need to start thinking about kind of that, that recovery phase. What happens next? What happens when the conflict is over? And we've definitely started to think about that in Syria and adjusted our strategy there so that it's not just focused on the immediate and the today, but also on the tomorrow and kind of looking down that, down that road. So we're taking a very, I think, um, intentional steps to start focusing our programming that way. And I think it's not just the cash. I think cash is a tool that helps us do that but it's kind of thinking through the entire program of what types of activities do we need to help that community and that country recover. Um, and cash is definitely a tool that allows us to do it most more, more efficiently. Thank you. Question in the corner here, and then two on this side of the room. Hi there, I'm Michael Cook from Give Directly. Um, we've heard uh, some really welcome focus on putting beneficiaries at, at the centre of, of what we're trying to do with cash and also uh, some about the shortcomings of the system as it exists at the moment. How does the panel think that beneficiaries would design a cash transfer system? And we'll take one more. Hi, my name's Edward Fraser. I work for People in Need. Um, I wanted to explore a little bit the, the localization agenda and use this report uh, as a lens through which to, to view that agenda. I'm keen to know the nature and extent of local organizations within the production of this report, and particularly if, if they were involved, to what extent their views might have differed from, from uh, larger international NGOs and UN agencies. Thank you. I'm going to ask you to have a have a stab at that first yeah. question around how a beneficiary might design. It's a really good question, actually, and I've never thought about it because, uh, you know, when we go and do our research, we ask people, you know, what works, what's working well, what challenges do you face? So they so they list a lot of the challenges, but we have never asked them to say, so how would you do the system yourself? I mean, just you know, 
some some of the challenges, for instance, that um, you know people just now were telling me in Nepal is like, for instance, um, for the disability allowance or, or, or grant, um, they're moving now to a banking system, and for disabled people um, and particular people, you know, the, the, the sort of facilities are not set up for disabled people to go to a bank. So, you know, there's no ramps, there's, for the blind there's no braille, they can't, you know, often the ATMs on, are on, on the second floor. So, so you know, the, so I think they would, you know, a disabled person would probably say it needs to be disabled friendly, we need to have some sort of system like that. I think for, for um, if it was a, a sort of general sort of family grant, you know, and, and if, if, you know, something that they were telling us a lot in Jordan, for instance, they were saying, we want more of a sort of personal experience. You know, want people to come and visit us and spend time with us and talk and let hear. You know, so that we can hear they can hear our problems. And I think there is actually a move now um, to increase the sort of cadre of sort of social worker types who go out to the houses. So that was sort of, in a way, was was a bit of a result of some of, some of our findings and other people's findings. So now, rather than just do M and E or sort of you know five minutes, they actually, you know, they're increasing this cadre to go to people's homes and talk to them. So more sort of a human touch. I think everybody will probably tell you that it's not enough. <laughs> um, that's the first thing that they will say, that you know they, they welcome it and often people don't want to make complaints, which is another problem because they feel that if they make a complaint then they will be stigmatized or they will be denied the money, but they usually tell us it's not enough. So although um, there's very careful calculations on how much it is based on, on sort of vulnerability assessments, sort of minimum basket of goods and things like that, they will tell us it's still it's not enough, but they don't necessarily complain. Um, so, you know, increasing it, you know, but, you know, where's the limit? That's, that's what they would say. Um, other problems are referred to access, for instance, for in a country like Jordan, for women to go out alone and to go alone to accesses. So, you know, they might say, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know, you know, is there ways that that could be delivered um, in a more sort of uh, neutral way to their homes? Obviously, that has huge implications. Um, I don't know. These are just some thoughts. And maybe other people have some thoughts as well. <laughs> or maybe you have some thoughts. <laughs> Do you have any? Well, I, I think my main thought is that we should ask. Yes. Yeah. They tell us challenges, but, you know, what the problem is. But w when we ask how would you like it delivered, it, you know, there's less of a response when we ask. Just sitting here, I know the Humanitarian Policy Group uh, here in ODI, they just published some reports, didn't they, earlier this year on how to redesign the humanitarian system, you know, as if people mattered. Or, I'm not quite sure what phrase they used, but, you know, a beneficiary-centered approach. So maybe there's some material in that. We are um, rapidly approaching 3.30, um, and I sit here having not done full justice to many of the questions and comments that have come from colleagues uh, who've been following this over the last hour and a half online, and I know there are more questions here. Thankfully, there's a very good report that I'd urge you to read <laughs> that covers many of those questions, but I think it just highlights for me the extraordinary level of interest um, and commitment to, to really engage with the cash agenda, um, and I think the report is, will play a really valuable role in helping set, address some of those issues. We've covered an extraordinary wide range of issues over the last hour and a half. And I'm just going to invite our panelists to give one parting comment reflection as we move towards just concluding this launch. So I'm going to start with you, Alex. Okay, thank you. Well, firstly, I'm absolutely delighted uh, to hear all the nice things people have said about this report. 
So I do hope that it provides uh, a basis for a, a common conversation about the next steps. I think that's what we need, uh, and I think the more dialogue we can have about, well, how do we work together to, to make the most of the potential of cash, the better. And just to take one example of that, I was really struck in this conversation by this question about investing in capacity. So we need capacities to do cash programming. Uh, we're still not quite sure what the configuration of capacities across different humanitarian actors should be. So that's one question we've got to answer. And we've got to link up the resourcing to that. And that's really tough. And I think that does mean looking beyond individual responses and trying to maximize efficiencies within individual responses to try to think about, well, what's the standing capacity that we need and what we think of as a humanitarian system and considering some of the issues we thought of, talked about around localization, but also the international actors who obviously still do have such a substantial role. And I'd love to see more joined up conversation about what capacities do we need to invest in and how do we get the resourcing to them alongside the conversation about how do we make sure that we've got the most efficient and effective response uh, within any particular humanitarian situation. Thank you. Danielle, over to you for a, a parting comment before we wrap up here in London. Sure. Um, so I think that we've, this report and, and this event has, has really shown that we've come very far, very quickly. Uh, and that's all very positive. And I think we, we, we recognize that. And I think this report does a great job of highlighting um, where we've seen great success and where we've seen great cooperation. And I'm going to encourage um, our folks here to, to, to look through it and really look for those lessons learned to, to, to take away. I especially like the case studies that I do think illuminate a lot of what we're talking about conceptually and make them uh, much more practical. Um, but I think it also does point to some of the homework we still have to do, some of those hard conversations we still have to have to make sure that the policy frameworks, the humanitarian architecture, the measures of outcomes um, are all in place so that we can feel confident as we continue to move forward and scale up and bring others along. Um, those are still some of those critical pieces that we that we need to focus on that both the report highlight, this conversation has highlighted, and you know, I've just seen over the past few years working in this area um, of, of, of needing to kind of to, to, to focus on. So I, I look forward to those continued conversations and working with everyone in the room who I can't see, but I know are there um, to, to continue down this path. And thank you for your, for your time and the effort that went into this, this report. Thanks, Daniel. Fiona. Just a quick comment from me, final thought. Um, this is very welcome. Um, but I, I, I suppose, you know, always keeping in mind, as also Matthew is mentioning, you know, the, the, the beneficiary, the sort of the end point, the sort of the voice of, of the person behind all of this. Um, and I think um, what also, what struck me very much in, in the little, because the, the, I've worked relatively little in humanitarian context, I'm, all from, a, I'm a, from a development background, but I think... I suppose to reiterate again that, you know, cash alone is not enough. And I think what people were telling us a lot in these contexts is we need psychosocial support services, you know, to deal with the sort of the, on, the, the, the trauma in the past, the trauma which is ongoing and the sort of future trauma. And I think that is something, one of the sort of services that we need to link more to and sort of think more about going forward. 
Well, thank you very much. I mean, I've found it absolutely fun. I'm not a cash expert, but uh, it's been fantastic to spend time with people who are. Um, and I feel really energised by this. I kind of get a sense that we've sort of moved. Maybe you'll say we'd already moved. But anyway, we've moved really from whether or not this is a cash is a really important tool to yes, it is a really important tool. Now, how do we actually make the most of it and make sure that we don't use it when it's not appropriate? But how do we how do we actually deliver it? And I think you know, what I sensed in the room was that there's a lot of humility about the fact that none of us have got the answers to a lot of these questions, um, which is which is great, but I did sense that there is a real kind of willingness of of people to really work together and try and get those answers, which I think is is where we is where we should be. Um, so that, I think, has been really exciting. I do think we really just need to do a couple of things I would really hope that we do as we go forward. First of all is to keep our ambition really high. We need to keep energy behind this because there are so many good reasons not to do stuff. You know, it doesn't fit with the way we're structured and so on. We've got to try and get over that and really challenge ourselves. And can we really do things differently? We've got to address the technological challenges. I think the data point is a really, really important one. And then finally, I think as we do all this, uh, most of the people in the room and uh, the collective virtual room are uh, have come to a humanitarian discussion, but we have to, I think, bear in mind that, you know, 80% of refugee crises are 10 years or more. 88% of humanitarian uh, people receiving assistance have been doing so for three years or more. The UN reform agenda we haven't talked about, which the UK really supports, that is trying to bring, one of the things I hope that will come out from that is better linking the peace development and humanitarian agendas. And I think it's important that as we look at cash in humanitarian situations, we're thinking how can it also contribute to longer term development and, it, and also how can it contribute to peace. So we've got to stick with our humanitarian principles, but we've got to do it in a way that is also thinking for the long term. Okay, thank you, Matthew. Um, Please join me in thanking our panel, who have, uh, I think, made some really valuable contributions. But thank you also to all of you for your participation. And I do realize that for many of these issues, we've only just scratched the surface. But I think it's been a really valuable opportunity to meet as a cash community, really, many of us here. Um, and so thanks to Danielle, Fiona, Alex, and Matthew for your contributions. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.